0: Good morning. You guys doing well? Boy, am I sure glad the Cardinals won last night. Because I was afraid we might have to do grief share here this morning. I'd have to re-preach last weekend's message, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Because the Cardinals got beat, but they didn't. So, hey, pretty pretty crazy, crazy game. It was a lot of fun watching. I had it on the DVR because I was here last night. And there was a lot of you that usually come on Saturday nights that you weren't here. <laughs> I needed the support. But uh, it was great. I, I did it on the DVR, went home and watched the first half of the game in about 30 minutes. And then caught up to the tail end of the game and, woo, it was good. It was a lot of fun. Hey, we've got a study here this morning. We've been working through this Reboot Teaching Series, Restore to Original Settings. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs, chapter three, we'll start off, that's kind of our launch pad here this morning. I'm gonna take us through Proverbs, quite a number of verses. Most of them are all on your notes. You can see, grab your sermon notes out. Reboot, Restore to Original Settings. We're gonna talk about rebooting financially here this morning. Um, there's a question I often like to ask people, especially in light of this $1.5 billion lottery uh, that just went down this last week. Uh, and the question I often will ask people, and I enjoy asking this, is that what would you prefer? Would you prefer a billion dollars or a billion and one dollars? And, you know, most people will say, well, it doesn't really matter. What's an extra dollar? To, to that billion dollars and I uh, yeah you're right okay let me give you another option here which what would you prefer Jesus or Jesus in a billion dollars yes. and if you really understood what you had in Jesus you'd say it really doesn't matter because you realize that there's no lottery winning in the world that could ever give you the satisfaction that only Jesus can give you And if you don't believe that, you haven't maybe encountered him or you're not living in the reality of who he is and what he offers us, week in and week out, day after day. I mean that with all sincerity, but it shows you really a a bit of the power that money has over us. Take a look at your sermon notes here. Money is the number one rival God that not only blinds us to its power over us, but also binds us from the financial freedom Christ died to give to us. Now, what's interesting when you look through the New Testament, Jesus talked more ab- about money than he did heaven or hell. And we also see in the New Testament that Jesus talked more about, you know, told more parables about money than anything else. So money is really a, an important topic. That's why we're dealing with it. We're going to reboot financially here this morning. And I'd like to start by uh, praying once again our theme verse for this series, Psalm eighty nineteen, And then we'll start reading through... Uh, Proverbs. There's quite an assortment selected verses in Proverbs and we're going to really answer the question uh, the power money has over us. We're going to take a look at that and then how to break that power and then how do I know that power is broken in my life and I'll give you some really good wise financial counsel here this morning. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love your presence. We pray that you would restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the power money has over us and that you would break that power, giving to us a financial freedom Through the experience of the joy of your presence and the conforming of our lives to your will, not out of duty, but out of a deep inner sense of your beauty. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at Proverbs uh, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. And uh, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Notice what it says here. There's a blessing in that. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. uh, It's figurative for us, obviously, but for them it was literal. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's the fascinating thing about the scriptures and particularly as it relates to finances. Would you agree with me that everything that we have has been given to us by God? Yeah, absolutely. Would you also, uh, do you agree with me that the Bible says that everything that we will ever need is promised by God? Yeah, absolutely. And would you also agree with that, that uh, everything we do with what has been given to us is ultimately accountable to God? You, you weren't as agreeing on that one as, as much as the first two, were you? But but then also, here's the fourth thing as it relates to this understanding, what the Scripture teaches about our, our resources, our finances, and all that God has given to us, is that, that when we... When we give to God and honor God with our finances, which are a blessing from God, and we take that and we honor him with it, there's, there's added blessing, that he blesses us. That's what's crazy about this is, is you look through scripture. So, so what we do with our resources as we honor him, if we give consistently, faithfully, sacrificially, joyfully, he rewards that. There's an amazing reward that comes to our lives. And uh, so how can we begin to experience that? Well, I think you need to really understand the power that money has over us and then how to break that power and then how to know that you are living in the reality of that power being broken and how to apply the biblical principles of financial freedom in your life. So let's talk about this. The power money has over us. By the way, Malachi also makes it pretty clear that this is uh, the only place in the scripture where he says, test me in this. There's no other place in scripture where God would, would say, hey, that we can test him. But he just says, actually, hey, just I'm gonna. You could say, God, I'm gonna test you. I'm gonna do this, and I'm just gonna see if you're gonna come through. And it's the only place in the Scripture where He actually says that, it, it, as it relates to our finances. And so the power money has over us. Now take a look at Proverbs ten sixteen. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn there. It's just a few few pages over. If not, you can follow along on your notes. I've got the, uh, these verses written on your notes. Proverbs ten sixteen. The wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. So basically, the idea here is they both have the same salary, but one leads to life and how he manages, the righteous manages it in such a way that it brings life, the, the wicked manages it in such a way that it brings sin. Now, here's the first fill in the blank on your, on your notes as it relates to the power money has over us. Number one, it can make or break community. There's a great definition of wicked and righteous by Bruce Waldke, I've got this on your notes. He's an Old Testament Hebrew scholar. This is what he says about wicked, the wicked person. The wicked person disadvantages the community to advantage himself. They see their money belonging only to themselves. So we could maybe apply it like this. Let me give you an illustration. As a business owner, if you, if you ask the highest price you possibly can, pay the lowest salaries you possibly can in order to get the highest profit you possibly can, then you are wicked based on what the Bible teaches. Because you're asking the question, how does this business benefit me only? Now, as you'll see that the Bible, what the Bible says about money will disturb the comfortable and disturb most of us here in America because of our understanding of money and the control that money has over our lives. Look at the definition for a righteous person in contrast. Righteous person disadvantages himself for the advantage of the community. The community would be his own family or the church family or the human family at large. They see their money as belonging to themselves and the community. So, and illustration of that would be the more money a righteous business owner makes, the more generous the prices for his customers, and the more generous the salaries of, for his employees. They, they will share the profits rather than take more for themselves. And the Bible would say, well, that's, that's a righteous person. They will enrich their employees and customers. And it answers the question how does this business benefit me and the community? So, so the Bible makes it very clear this distinction between uh, wicked and righteous based on Proverbs 10 16. And so the power money has over us, it can make or break community. But, but here's the next thing. Look at Proverbs. Now move a uh, kind of a page over. Proverbs eleven four. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The word righteousness, you could also say character. Character delivers from death. Here's the second point: the power money has over us. It can make or break community, but it can make or break character That's the next fill in the blank. It can make or break character. What is this day of wrath? So riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness or character delivers from death. The day of wrath is a really, really terrible day, a day of sorrow, a day of trauma. It's the day that you, you discover that your most trusted friend or spouse betrayed you in a, in a major way. The day of wrath is the day that you discover you have been diagnosed with that maybe an incapacitating disease or maybe even a fatal disease. and They only give you a few months to live. The day of wrath is the day that you discover that you get the news that someone you love very much has suddenly died or is getting ready to die because of a severe accident. That's the day of wrath. Everybody look up here. No amount of money, no Absolutely no amount of money can get you through the day of wrath like character. And all of us will go through the day of wrath. We will all experience a day of wrath. That's what, that's what the Bible's teaching us. No amount of money can get you through the day of crisis or calamity like character. Now, why is that? Because money has the power to make you shallow. That's the next, and you're filling the blank. It can make you Shallow. Making and spending money is is easier and more fun than developing your character. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard work to develop character. Making and spending money can keep you so busy from taking the time that you need to develop character. It takes time to develop character. Character takes time by being alone with God and with friends through spiritual disciplines. It all takes time. I know people that are just so busy, they don't have time for church. They don't have time to hang out with other Christians. They don't have time to read their Bible. They're too busy making money. And, And that's what oftentimes it does. Making and spending money can do that. Making and spending money can tend to mask and medicate the deeper issues of our life. Making and spending money can fill us with pride, keeping us from being able to hear the truth. So not only do we need to take out time to hang out with God... And with friends, but we also need to have truth spoken to us in our lives. We are desperate to hear truth. And uh, Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So, so, wo- uh, so friends wound us as a surgeon cuts us, not to hurt us, but to heal us. And we desperately need to hear uh, truth because that's what helps to shape our lives. I don't know if you've ever uh, watched the, the biographies or read the biographies of Elvis Presley or even Michael Jackson. You know, it's fascinating about their stories. It's uh, kind of an extreme example, but we all to a certain degree uh, kind of live there. In their biographies, because they had had so much money, they surrounded themselves with people who would tell them what they wanted to hear and not what they needed to hear. They just you know I'll just oh you don't you're not going to give me the uh, the meds that I want I'll find another doctor. We tend to live like that in our culture today. I'll just find well, I don't like what they have to say to me I'll just find another church or I'll find more friends that will tell me what I want to hear that will placate and patronize me. And we all tend to do that and that's because of it's because of pride. So so money can tend to make us shallow and take a look at the next verse. You can turn all the way to Proverbs 30:8 through 9. It says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Why is that? Falsehood and lying is going to get me into trouble. I need to be able to hear the truth. This is what transforms my life. So, remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? It's kind of a snarky, cynical, like, who's the Lord? Who is this God? That's what he's saying. That's what we will say when we're, when we're wealthy and we're doing well and everything looks good for us, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. So, so money can make us shallow because we become very proud. That's the next point on your notes. It can make you proud, Now, who is the, what biblical character said, who is the Lord? Anybody know what biblical character said that? Who is the Lord? Pharaoh. Yes, good. It was a Pharaoh. It was uh, to Moses. Moses said, well, the Lord said, let your people go. Let his people go. And he goes, who's the Lord? Kind of had that attitude. Bernard Clairvaux ancient church theologian, he said, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. So it's almost impossible when you think about finances and resources and and riches and wealth, it's almost impossible not to think that just because you're smart at making money, then you think you're smart in everything else. We see this happen all the time. When when the the media goes to the Hollywood crowd to get their advice in politics or any number of things, it's like, what the... (laughs) Doesn't that seem a little odd? It's like, what the heck do they know? They don't know anything. They can't even manage their own homes and lives. Their lives are, their lives are crashing and burning. But because they're wealthy, ho, let's get their advice. But that's the control that money has over us in our culture today. We put too, we elevate it. We, we make too much of it. And the, and the problem with that, when we, we feel secure in our, in our resources, you don't take advice or listen to other people's judgment. There's an arrogance that creeps in that says, who is the Lord? I don't need him. Everything's going well for me. I see that happen with people all the time. I even see that in my own life. It's kind of like, ah, put God on the shelf, everything's going well. And I'm just kind of doing my own thing. Who is the Lord? Now let me ask you this question. What is the single most practical life skill in decision-making, in marriage, in all successful relationships, and also in finances? What's, th- what's the single most practical life skill? Turn to the person next to you and see if they can come up. What's the single, single most practical life skill as it relates to this? That's a hard one. Okay, what are you guys thinking? Communication, that's a good one. That's a good answer. Actually, here's, here's my answer. The ability to admit you are wrong. Yeah. The ability to admit you're wrong. How many would find that's really difficult? I found that really difficult for the first 30 years of my marriage. I've just started learning that in the last decade. And it really helps for a better marriage relationship. Honey, I'm so sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me. I mean, but that's, that's, a, that's a great ability. The ability to admit you're wrong. The ability to repent when you are wrong. Without it taking a long time and being traumatic and making the other person feel horrible for making you do it. <laughs> it's being quick to admit that you are wrong and pride will keep you from this. And money tends to support that. When we have a lot of money, we think, whoa, look at me. I don't need any help from anybody. I got it covered. Makes you full of yourself. Weak people finding hope in God's grace are what mark healthy Christianity. When you really look at Christianity, what is the essence of Christianity? I realized I was weak. I realized I was desperate. I'm in need of a savior. And that drew you to the Savior where you could find abundance in Him. But it's that weakness where you find the strength in Him. But that weakness, you to be weak, you need to be humble and, and admit the fact that you are in need. The ability to admit you are wrong. Delusions of strength, not weakness, is our biggest obstacle. And also people look at their lives, they go, But I got so many weaknesses. Praise God you're in the sweet spot of being able to now see how desperate you are for Jesus because up to that point you probably couldn't see it but now you're beginning to see that because we're all weak some of us know it some of us don't some of us medicate it some of us you know medicate it through finances or money or any number of things and so so that's important for us so how do you, how to break its power over us so that's the power of money so that it can make or break community it can make or break character because uh, money can make you shallow. It makes you shallow because you're proud. It makes you really proud. Before long, you're saying, well, who is the Lord? I don't need that. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to read my Bible. I can do my own thing. So how to break its power over you. I love this, uh, these next verses, Proverbs 18, 10, 11. Verse 10 has just been a, a great verse in my life. Many times of crisis and difficulty. I've run to this verse because it tells me where to run. The Lord, the name of the Lord, that's his personal name, Yahweh, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now let, let that verse kind of hit you just for a minute. We all run somewhere. We all run somewhere. When we're anxious, we're angry, we're, whatever's going on in our life, when we're worried, we're gonna run somewhere. He's saying the righteous man runs into it And is safe into what the strong tower? What's the strong tower? The name of the Lord. What's the name of the Lord? His character. Who he is. That's good stuff. Now notice the contrast here. This is really an important contrast to see. Verse eleven, he says, "A rich man's wealth is his strong city." Let's check this next phrase out. And like a high wall, in his imagination. It's all in his head. Oh, I'm going to be okay. i got plenty of money. I'll be okay. I can handle anything that life throws at me. That's in his imagination. In your dreams is what it's saying. <laughs> and uh, cities were places of prominence, protection, and prosperity. Outside cities, outside the city walls, there were wild animals, vigilante justice, and enemies. And so there was no greater metaphor for security, status, significance, than to live within the walls of a city. Here's your next uh, couple fill-in-the-blanks, number one. Money is the number one rival God is either our security or our significance. So when you start looking at it as a rival God, you're gonna fall into one of those two categories. It's either gonna be your security because you're gonna like to really save. Usually you can see that you, it's more of your security because you like a lot of money in the bank. You're a saver. That's me. When I began to look at my idolatry of money, it was, more about, it was more about saving. I needed to have a certain amount of money in the bank and always be saving and saving and paying things off. And I, I married someone who was the opposite of me, my sweet bride. She was not a saver. She was a spender. Yes, that's the second one. Her idolatry of money was more about significance, what she could buy. When she came home after that shopping spree with six pairs of shoes, right after we had been married, I blew a head gasket, you know. It was just like, what? Six pairs of shoes? At, at best, you only need two. One for church and one for work, okay? That's it. Okay, maybe one for play, but they, in fact, you can just get one pair and use them for all three, okay? My mindset is like, because I was a saver. It was, she was challenging my security, and then I was challenging her significance. What's a girl going to do with only three pairs of shoes, you know? <laughs> or two pairs of shoes. I need a whole bunch more. So it's kind of interesting. We saw that happen in our lives. It was really a great challenge. And I know when she first married me, she thought, man, this guy's really wise with finances. And about two weeks into it, she was saying, this guy's a tightwad. <laughs> What did I get myself into? This guy won't let me spend anything. And, uh, and so, I mean, we, it, took us, it took us another three decades to work through that. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's kind of how you know money is the number one rival God is either our security through saving or our significance through spending. Here's some uh, tests to show you if money is too important to you. Uh, There's the envy test, the anxiety test, the spender test, and the saver test. You probably can't write all this down, but it's pretty simple. The envy test works like this. If you see people making more money than you, do you envy them? And one of the ways that you can tell if you envy them, are you sad when they are happy or are you happy when they're sad? (laughs) That's the true test of envy. And then there's the anxiety test. Are you always thinking about money, always worried about money, always stressed out about money? And, and if you are, I mean, certainly there's a certain amount of anxiety that's appropriate that will motivate you to maybe go out and get a job, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and so that would probably be a good thing. But if you're inordinately anxious, it's keeping you up nights. Nice, then you're putting too much trust in money and not enough trust in God. So it's an opportunity for you to relocate your trust in God when you have that inordinate anxiety. Here's the spender test. Do you feel better by shopping and buying new things? I actually heard a TV preacher, this is, this guy, this one TV network, this uh, Christian network obviously plays this guy over and over again. It's some of the worst theology I've ever heard. But he actually says, hey, come on, I mean, don't you, don't you feel better when you got $200 in your back pocket? Every Christian needs to have $200 in in your back pocket. The only reason why you feel better is because you misplaced your sense of identity and security. If you feel better because of $200 in your back pocket, you don't know Jesus very well. All the $200 or $500 or how much money you got in the bank is not going to give you the security that only Christ can give you. But I just, I've heard that kind of theology on uh, Christian TV. It's just outrageous. (laughs) Just like, come on, dude, read your Bible. And he's taking people through Proverbs, kind of trying to give them some wise financial counsel, and it's a mess. It's messed up. I've seen it bring more bondage than freedom. So that's the spender test. Do you feel better by shopping and and buying new things? Here's the saver test. Or, on the other hand, do you feel better by not buying anything at all? That's me, okay. We're not going to buy anything. Do you hear me? Two pairs of shoes. That's what everybody gets. That's it. Okay, so that's... That's that test. Here's what's fascinating, and as I I did more research on this, as it relates to the power that money has over us, you probably don't know this, but it's an empirical fact that, that the more money you make, the lower percentage you give away. All the studies and statistics show the smaller the income, the higher the percentage you give to charity. The higher the income, the lower the percentage you give to charity. So oftentimes when you hear, you know, the, the rich and famous, oh, they just gave $2 million. Statistically, are you kidding? That's, statistically, it's nothing compared to the people that are really, you know, giving to charity are typically more the middle class and, and below that. They're the ones that are, that are the most generous. Now, number two on your notes, even if money isn't your idol, it will reveal your idols. If it's not your idol through security significance, it will reveal your idols. It will give you a false sense of security and inflated identity by fulfilling your idolatries. So it will give you a false sense of security and inflated identity by fulfilling your idolatries. Where do you effortlessly spend your money? That would be the question. So without even thinking, you can just drop a few bucks here or there. Where does that go when you can can do that? Matthew six twenty one it says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your treasure, your time and money, just naturally flows to where your heart is. So money reveals your heart. So you need to know that. For me, for many years early on in the marriage relationship, it was books. You come over to my house, my studies in, in the house, and I've got this one wall, it's just packed full of books, and people come in there and go, wow, you got a lot of books. And I like, yeah, I do, don't I? <laughs> I certainly do, and I need more books. And, uh, and of course, for my wife, it was more uh, home... Shoes. okay, yeah. It was actually Shoes. I broke her of that really, really quick after that, but actually I never did. I don't know what to do about that, but, but, but it was other things like buying things for the kids, and now it's more like, uh, like for the for the grandkids. It's like like how many how many of these cute little dresses do you need to buy for these sweet granddaughters? I mean, it's like how many? Don't don't support her. Come on. <laughs> Some of you are saying, you can never have enough. Oh, this was so, I had to buy it. It was just, so. oh. And then I, so that, I say the same thing when I have a book. I had to buy it. So how many, how many books, you know, how many cute dresses, how many, how many do you need to buy? Here's uh, number three on your notes. On the day of wrath, the only safe place is the name of the Lord. Is the name of the Lord. One of my, uh, another favorite verse of mine that I have run to in times of, of crisis and calamity is Psalm 9, 9, and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name. Those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. Oh my goodness, that's a wonderful verse. So know his name. Oftentimes people will say, hey, pastor, I'm really struggling with trusting in God. And so trusting in God or faith isn't something you kind of muster up by trying hard. I'm going to try to have more faith. You don't do it like that. You actually trust really comes as a result of focusing more on the object of your faith. Faith will increase in direct proportion to how much you focus on the object of your faith and getting to know the object of your faith. And so the more you get to know him, the more you're going to trust him. Those who know his name will trust in him. That's what it says in that verse. You're going to trust him. You can't help but trust him, so you need to spend time with him. The more you get to know him, the more you spend time with him. The more you're gonna naturally trust him. If you're not trusting him, I mean, there's times, sometimes I'm, I'm crazy just thinking about all that's going on and oh, I need, some, I need to put my trust back in you, God, so I'll go back and spend time with him. And focus on, and in fact, there's three attributes that you desperately need to know about God that will get you through any storm. You guys probably know what they are. I, I teach them, I taught them quite often here. The first one is that your father in heaven loves you like nobody's business, man. He loves you. He is perfect in his love for you. So that's the first one. You got to really understand his love. It's got to be more than just something you know here in your head. It's got to be real to your heart. So that's why you study. That's why you meditate. That's why you pray. So God, make this real to my heart. So he's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. Oh my goodness. His wisdom is beyond the, the skies. It says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above ours. How high are the heavens above the earth? Incalculable. So are his, his wisdom, his ways, his thoughts. So he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and he's unlimited in his power. He's sovereign, he's in control. Even when things seem out of control, guess what? He's still in control. He's still in control of our lives. And so in his perfect love, he wants what is very best for us. In his wisdom, he knows what is best for us. And in his unlimited power, his sovereignty, he's going to do what's best for us. We can rest in him. We can trust in him. That's what those verses are saying. I was studying this last week, and I jotted down in my journal as I was studying through Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. This is what I wrote down. God did not keep Daniel out of the den, but was with him in the den. Peace is not the absence of troubles, but the presence of Christ. You're going to go through the day of wrath. You're going to have difficult days. The only thing that's going to get you through those is not more money. It's going to be character. and It's going to be character based on the character of God and who he is and knowing him. Those who know his name, trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. I love that. You can take that to the bank. It's an amazing, amazing test, uh, text. What do you have to fear if your heavenly Father is loving, wise, and in control of every detail of your life for your good and His glory? So let me ask you this Where do you go when you can't sleep, you're anxious, you're worried, or stressed out? I go to the refrigerator and get that big old bowl of ice cream. And saturated, I'm going to be talking about our physical bodies next week, so okay. There you go. But I mean, where do you go? Where do you go when you're stressed out, when you're anxious? All of the smaller days of wrath are meant to prepare you for the greatest day of wrath that we will all face. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not what? perish what, what perish from what the wrath of God he saved us from himself the wrath of God God is a holy righteous judge and he saves us from perishing and therefore as believers in Jesus Christ there is therefore now no wrath no condemnation no wrath <laughs> So these smaller days of wrath are just to remind us, hey, wait a minute. I don't have to face the greater day of wrath because Jesus took that for me. Oh, and by the way, these smaller days of wrath, he's for me and not against me, and he's gonna see me through this. He loves me. He's wise. He's in control. I trust his love. So the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I love it. I love it. There's the peace in, in practicing it. So, so what will galvanize that truth in our hearts so that we can really begin to believe that, and begins to break the power of money in our lives? Proverbs 11:24 gives us a great uh, biblical principle. It's an agriculture metaphor. It says, "One gives freely yet grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give." And only suffers once. So it's an agriculture metaphor for, the, basically it says this, the more you sow, the more you reap. The more you hoard, the more you hoard your seed, the less you'll eat. And that, it's, a, it's a principle. So the biblical principle, really throughout the wisdom literature, is, it goes like this, scattering gathers and gathering Scatters that's, that's the biblical principle So scattering gathers And gathering Or hoarding scatters When we scatter our gifts To the poor Here through desert breeze We are uniting our culture Bringing people to God And to one another That's, what, that's the idea So scattering gathers And gathering Hoarding Scatters If the well off Hold on to their money And spend it all on themselves You have a divided culture It disintegrates Culture and community. And uh, so how does that break the power of money in our lives? By seeing that Jesus is the ultimate example of that principle. Look at number four. Jesus was scattered so that we might be gathered. Jesus was scattered so that we might be gathered. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and then 9, 8 are two of my, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's just, they're outstanding verses. Uh, 8 and 9 gives us the definition of grace, probably the best definition of grace, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become what? Rich, rich yeah. So he was scattered, he became poor, so that we might be gathered, that we might become rich. We're gathered to the Father, and there's a, there's a sense of he begins to put our lives back together. There's a wholeness that comes as a result of that. And then as that begins to work in our lives... 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Let me read those verses to you because this is what begins to take place as we understand what Christ has done for us. By the way, these are the two best chapters in the New Testament on, on giving and on finances, but this is what he says. This is the, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, that's why we don't pass the plate, and, and that's why we, we don't beat you guys up over finances. I came from a background where they would really kind of beat you up. They'd spend 15, 20 minutes taking the offering. It's pretty crazy. And the Bible says, don't ever give reluctantly or under compulsion. When someone tries to force you to give or you feel reluctant about it, it says, don't do that because God, God loves what kind of a giver? hilarious is literally what it means. And what he's saying is that to the degree you understand the grace that's been given to you, to the degree, man, you're just going to be generous. You're going to realize that he was scattered so that you could be gathered. Therefore, you're going to scatter so that others can be gathered. That's the point here. And then I love that, that verse 80 says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting principle, but it's the only principle in the Bible where the Bible says challenge God in this, that as you begin to become generous, God begins to bless you. Your life becomes less of a reservoir and more of a river of resources, and there's unbelievable blessing that comes into our lives. Jesus was scattered so that we might be gathered. Isaiah 52, 53. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition with nails driven into his hands and feet. He was beaten 39 times with, with a whip that ripped the flesh off of his back. This is the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. His side was pierced with a sword. He was scattered. He was broken to pieces so that we might be gathered to God and one another. That's why we take communion, representing his broken body and shed blood for us. The cross is the ultimate example of wealth distribution. So when you see him doing that for you, your security and your significance is no longer in your wealth but in him and therefore you will want to scatter your wealth so that others will be gathered to him. Now, let me, we're gonna finish this up. I'm gonna go pretty quickly here. I've taught this many times before. You can get even more details if you go through our, our Dave Ramsey class, Financial Peace University. And um, how many have gone through that class? It's an outstanding class. I would encourage everyone to go through it. It's gonna kick off on the 29th of February. And you can sign up for it and go through that class. And, uh, but there's five biblical principles for wise financial management. This is kind of how you know the, the power is broken over. You're going to be wise. You will diligently practice these principles. And these are the principles that my wife and I have practiced f- from, from the early parts of our marriage relationship. The first one is planning. It's really about a budget. Budget, and we encourage people to go 10-10-80. It's a 10-10-80 rule. And I'll, I'll talk about that. But first of all, you need to switch verses. I, I gave you the wrong verses. This verse here, this Proverbs 27, should go to the next point, accounting, and the one there should go up to this one. So just draw an arrow from this one to the other. So Proverbs 21, five is the actual verse for planning. It says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. So if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. A budget is planned spending. It is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went, Okay. It's just kind of like saying, this is where I want my money to go and this is how I'm going to do it. and I'm going to divide it up like that. Um, it's, uh, the first 10% goes to God through your local church family. And, and every time you tithe, what you're saying to God is that you're thankful for the past. You're saying to God that you're number one in my presence and I'm trusting you for the future. That's what you're saying when you give faithfully and you're giving that first uh, 10%. The next 10% is to yourself for savings, See, first of all, you take that first 10 to God, the next 10 to your savings, and you're going to live on 80. But let me talk about that 10% to yourself. You might not know this, but the average Japanese person saves 25%. The average European saves 18%. What do you think the average American saves? They actually spend 1% more than they made. Welcome to America. That's, That's where we are. So if you can't afford to save, then you're, then you're spending too much, and you should. And, and uh, is this true? Does Dave Ramsey say that you need to have at least three to six uh, months worth? Okay, the, the teachers of our Financial Peace University sitting right back here. In fact, by the way, if you want any, any counsel, I know that they'd be more than happy to sit down with you uh, and, and talk with you about that. So it's, it's just really, really wise counsel. Three to six months of expenses saved up, and then you live on the 80%. The financial university, he also has does he give a breakdown on where you should be spending the specific amounts of your money through a budget, kind of a budget process? Yeah, okay, thanks, Rich. Um, and so that's the planning. The next is accounting. It's record keeping. And the verse there is Proverbs 27, 23, and 24. Know well the condition of your flocks. How many have ever heard people say this? I just don't know where all my money goes. Anybody ever say that before? It's because you don't keep good records. You don't keep good records, and you need to keep records. By the way, Scott was telling me, Pastor Scott was telling me last night, this is a good conflict resolution skill. Keep really good records, and you just show them. See, this is how much money I spent on all those shoes. (laughs) I didn't just throw it away. I bought shoes or whatever. He says it's really great for conflict resolution. You need to know where your money's going. You've got to keep track of every Starbucks or, or QT run. I mean, they all add up. And here's the goal, really. This might sound crazy and outlandish, but I want to put the bar up high. It's the beginning of the year to start thinking about. You need to be out of debt. It's really about being debt-free. And really, the only, uh, the only loans that you should have are, are home and, and maybe a car, and maybe some education, but you need to know the difference between tool and plague debt. There's a difference between tool and te- uh, plague debt. Um, if you're struggling financially, God won't keep bailing you out if you keep digging the hole dig- bigger and bigger, deeper and deeper. In other words, you need to begin to apply these principles. As I've heard people think that they're going to be generous with their finances, but then they violate all these other principles. You're going to still have some problems. You need to apply God's word to your life. And so you can have some wise financial management. These, these are biblical principles for wise financial management. My wife and I, have, uh, we've, we had a 15-year mortgage on our home. And we've been married for close to 40 years. That home was paid off like that. So that just, not only did we save hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest and, and freed up a lot of resources for generosity and giving and other things, it just, it just brought so much freedom to our lives. We've paid cash for our last three cars now, they're all mopeds, but other than that, <laughs> okay, they're not like expensive cars. They're all that Scion and, you know, about bought a used truck and things like that. But I mean, it's, it's not our identity. It's not our vehicles. Point A to point B, boom, that's all we need. No big deal. But you got to start thinking. It's more of a mindset of thinking and being debt-free and freeing up resources to be able to be more generous. And you got to do that, you got to have understand true wealth. That's the next one. So you got planning which is budget, accounting, record-keeping, and then you got true wealth, the fear of the Lord. Look at Proverbs 15, 16 through 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure. The fear of the Lord, we've already been talking about that. The the name of the Lord is a high tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. I mean, the fear of the Lord is this. It's a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. I mean, you just, you are, you are wrecked. You're ruined because you, you know him. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the man who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So what he's saying here is that Donald Trump, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates have nothing on us who know Jesus. I mean, that's the bottom line. There is a contentment. There's a completeness in Christ that cannot be found in money. That's just the bottom line. And so to, under, to, to know true wealth, that will help you with the next one, self-control. Stops impulsive, compulsive spending. Proverbs 25:28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You've heard it said before, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like because we lack self-control. So how many books, how many cars, how many toys, how many guns, how many clothes is enough? How many sweet little cute dresses for sweet granddaughters is enough, Nancy? (laughs) I hope she listens to this message. I'm going to download it for her just to make sure that she listens to it. Maybe I could play it while she's sleeping at night, just over (laughs) and over again. And then the last one is generosity. Faithfully, sacrificially, joyfully. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, we circle do for, full circle here. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all of your produce. And as it says, it's a pretty amazing promise. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now how much should I give away? That's oftentimes people will ask me. There's two rules of thumb one in the old testament and one in the new testament the first rule of thumb in the old testament every believer was required to give away 10% and by the way that was also not just commanded in the old testament it was commended by jesus in the new testament matthew 23:23 23, 23. so if you decide to give 10% congratulations you have attained old testament standards But the New Testament standard is actually much more than that. Let me ask you this question. Have you received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than Old Testament believers or less? Much more. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Yeah, much more. In the New Testament, second rule of thumb, Jesus Christ did not tithe his blood. He gave it all. He sacrificed. The key is sacrifice. That's the standard that is established um, for the New Testament. And here's what it, it looks like, as I stated there. It's faithfully, sacrificially, joyfully. What does that mean, sacrifice? You give away so much that there is a measurable sacrifice in how you live. That's what the Bible teaches. You should be giving so much of your money to ministry and to the poor that it makes a measurable difference in your lifestyle in the vacations you take, the house you live in, the cars you drive, the clothes you wear. My wife and I have been practicing this principle since we've been first married. And and this is what it looks like. It's tithing, which is 10% to the local church family, offerings, which is over and above. We, We give to the Dare You to Move campaign and then also to missionary efforts. And I drink as much coffee as I can. So All the prophets go to missions, but, but then it's also alms. It involves all of those. And it would probably average out to be about 20% or more right around there. And that might be way too high of a standard for many of you to be, even begin with. But you need to start somewhere because I'm telling you, this is the only place in the scripture where it says, test me in this. And there's amazing blessing that comes as a result, especially when you take into consideration, man, how much we've been blessed. It just becomes, you don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. You give because God loves a cheerful giver because you just want to give. You just want to bless people because you know that scattering gathers and gathering scatters. And you understand that principle and you want to live that out. Next weekend, guess what? So, I mean, each of these are getting a little bit more difficult. Have you noticed? So we talked about finances. Next week, we're going to talk about our bodies. Ooh, and then the following week, we're going to talk about our sexuality. So look out. Here we go. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father God, keep us from being blinded to the power money can have over us and also keep money from binding us from the financial freedom Christ died to give to us. Jesus, your name is a strong tower and we are able to run into it and are safe. Thank you for the peace that we have in your presence in our life. Teach us how to learn to practice your presence more and more each and every day. I pray for those who are struggling financially that you would work a miracle in their lives. Jesus, you were scattered that we might be gathered. And so may we scatter our wealth so that others may be gathered to you. Thank you, God, for the generosity of this church family. We wouldn't be able to do what we do week in and week out if it wasn't for the great generosity that those who who give faithfully and sacrificially and joyfully God, thank you. So we pray, God, that you would empower us to live out these five principles of wise financial management for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.